Dear church family, societies, churches, families, and individuals of all times and all places have always disagreed over immensely important questions. Questions about economics, questions about politics, questions about science. Questions about medicine. Questions about the validity of war. Questions about the purpose of civil law. Questions about the environment. And the list could go on and on and on. In fact, if you look around at the various libraries that can be found in this country and also in Europe and other areas of the world, you'll discover that large chunks of these libraries have been developed simply because of this propensity in mankind to disagree over immensely important matters. But while some of these things we must confess we have the freedom to disagree over, There are some things we simply may not disagree upon. And one of those things, one of those things is this. That as dying people, in dying cultures, in a dying world, we all are desperately in need of some sort of secure comfort and salvation and help. And we can see this, can't we? Even through a surface level inspection of life. Our human race is afflicted with sickness, with disease, with handicaps, with mental struggles. We fight all sorts of battles against cancer and Alzheimer's and heart disease and liver disease and the list goes on and on. And then even our streets here in southern Alberta demonstrate the truth of this. Problems with drugs, problems with alcohol, problems with immorality, homelessness problems, hopelessness problems. And on top of that, we have all our own difficulties to deal with, don't we? Personal struggles business problems, relational struggles, problems with our parents, problems with our kids, problems with our schools, problems with our neighbors, and so on and so forth. Solomon says that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But even more than all these problems, underneath all these problems, we deal as a people, with what we could describe as the spiritual rot of sin that goes to the very core of who we are as a human race. And despite the fact that salvation in Jesus Christ has been proclaimed from pulpits all around this world for centuries, there are still billions of people walking around on the face of this earth who pay no attention to the fact that they are dying and that sin lies at the root of their death. There was a story of a well-known atheist in the 18th century who in his lifetime condemned the Bible and spoke against it. But upon his deathbed, he said these words to those around him. Stay with me. For God's sake, I cannot bear to be left alone. O Lord, help me. O God, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me hereafter? I would give worlds if I had them, that the age of reason had never been published. O Lord, help me. Christ, help me. No, don't leave me. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me. For I am on the edge of hell here alone. No comfort. No help. No salvation. So this is what the world needs, isn't it? A secure 
immovable comfort and salvation in Jesus Christ. But even if we look at ourselves in the church, we have our struggles too, don't we? We have all the health struggles and sometimes all the relational struggles in the world. But also within us, we face the war, don't we, against the world and the flesh and the devil. We also are in desperate need of comfort, of salvation, of a secure help in something outside ourselves. And because this need is so great, because each individual sitting here today, from the youngest to the oldest, must have this, we are given passages like the passage we've just read today from Romans 8. And I want to focus this morning on verse 31 through to the end of the chapter, with the theme taken simply from verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I have ten points today, shorter points. Will the law, will our sin, will our suffering, will our death, will our life, Will spiritual powers, will the present, will the future, will height, will depth, will anything separate us from the love of Christ? Now, as we begin, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been on a hike, children? Maybe you've been on a hike. You've hiked for several hours and You've traveled up this mountainside, and finally you reach the summit of the trail. And you turn around, and you look at everything you have just hiked through. And your mind is filled with awe at the beauty of this territory which you have been traveling through. Some years ago, when I was traveling across the states, I stopped at Glacier National Park, and I hiked up this small trail, not knowing what the end would be. And all of a sudden, I reached the top. And it was this narrow, narrow top, maybe five to six feet wide. And suddenly, I was surrounded by the beauty and the glory of everything that lay around me. Now, the Apostle Paul, as we come to this passage, is really experiencing something very similar to this. All through the beginning eight chapters of Romans, Paul has been leading his readers down what we often call the Romans road to salvation. He has led his readers through the bogs and the marshlands of sin and of condemnation. He's compelled them to admit that they are sinners And that they stand condemned before a perfectly just God. And he's led some of his readers to confess that when they were condemning others, they actually stood there as hypocrites, chest deep in their own sin. And then he's taken his readers and he's pointed them to this fearful reality that the trail that led up to God formerly The trail of the law, obedience to the law, was shut off. It had a landslide, if you will, of sin and misery covering it. There was no way back to God through the law. But then he takes them, doesn't he, by the hand. And he leads them onto the solid rock of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He teaches them that there's no other ground upon which they can stand, that will present them as righteous before God. And if you follow the analogy, there is no other pathway. There is no other trail that they can take that will bring them safely to heaven one day. We might say that the refrain, the refrain of this group of people who follows Paul on this Romans road comes in the words of that familiar hymn, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. 
And so they climb on through these chapters. And as you work your way through the chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, you get the feeling, don't you, that you're working your way higher and higher into the beauties of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But now in Romans 8, we come to what we might describe as the summit, the summit of Paul's declarations concerning this wonderful grace of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, in fact, in our texts, really does what I spoke of earlier. He turns around and he looks at all this ground that he and his readers have covered. And it's as if his breath is taken away by the beauty of it all. There's so much glory in the grace of God in in Jesus Christ. So much to rest his confidence upon. So much to marvel at. But he doesn't simply marvel, does he? We see it as if he turns around and he looks at those around him. And he cries out in wonder to them all. Verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Paul's heart, we might say, is swollen like a mountain stream in the springtime. Maybe you've seen those mountain creeks or streams during the spring melt. They often break their borders, don't they, and flow into the the ground around them. And Paul's heart, as he considers this glory and this wonder of the salvation found in Jesus Christ, finds this joy breaking out from him. He, He has to tell other people about this wonder, this spiritual wonder of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We might say he breaks out in a cry of full confidence, full assurance in Jesus Christ. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And we need to take note this morning of something. This assurance, this confidence that seems to have gripped Paul's heart in an iron grasp does not come from self-meditation. It comes from dwelling upon the wonderful, the glory-filled, merciful character of God. That's where his assurance comes from, from looking upon God in all his grace. And so can we ask ourselves this morning as we think about Paul's reaction to the grace of God, can we ask ourselves a question? Do we have moments like this in our lives? Moments where all the busyness of life, all the struggles, perhaps, of life, all the pleasures of life, just fade away in the light of this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? Does your heart at times become filled with fresh visions of the grace of God in Christ Jesus to you. Moments when your failures start to slip off to the side. Your sins start to take a backseat. Your struggles no longer fill your mind, but your eyes are filled with the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Moments when you can say, what shall we then say to these things? Do you have these moments? You know, sometimes we sing at him. Be thou my vision. It's a command, a request. Be thou my vision. O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping. Thy presence, my light. We sing these words, don't we? But do we seek to have these visions of God? Do we seek at times to fill our hearts through the word of God with fresh pictures of who God is 
in all his grace. I'm sure many of God's people can tell us that from experience, it's only when we regularly fill ourselves with visions of who God is in his grace that we can continue on in the life that God has called us to walk as Christians. Now, Paul does not just give this exclamation, does he? He goes on in our text. He says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And then he gives the reason. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The logic is this. If God gave that which was supremely valuable to him, which was more precious than anything else, how will he not also give you everything else? But even as Paul makes this rhetorical statement, this statement that really cannot be disproved, it's almost as if a hand goes up from one of his readers in verse 33 and says something like this, Pastor Paul, It's wonderful for you to stand here and for you to experience this assured confidence in the love of God. But, Paul, what about the law? What about the law in my spiritual life? Will that separate me from the love of Christ? You see, Paul, even after I put my trust in Jesus Christ, I find that the law often comes running after me in my life and it accuses me. It accuses me in my conscience when I sin. It accuses me Sunday morning when I hear the law read. It accuses me in my heart when I hurt those around me through my sin. It says to me, how can you be a Christian when you have broken God's law? Don't you know that the demands of God's law are perfect obedience? So Paul You say that God is for us. So who can be against us but Paul? What about the law? Paul, I struggle. Paul, I live a life of fear. Paul, will the law separate me from the love of Christ? Paul's answer is simple but profound. Paul takes us in verse 33 And he he points us away from our own selves. He points us away from our consciences. He points us away from our feelings. He points us away from the whisperings of the devil in our ears. And he points us up into the heavenly courtroom of God himself. And he places us before God the judge. With all of heaven, if you will, looking on. And he asks the question, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. And then it's as if he stops and looks around. And if you look at the rest of Romans, here we might say the law stands up and says, this man or this woman, O Lord, has broken your holy law, and therefore he must be condemned. But even as the law begins to speak, this judge, our holy God, gives this response. Who shall lay anything to the charge of of God's elect. It is God that justifies. But then the law stands up in another form, maybe the form of a, of a friend or a family member or someone from church or a neighbor and says, Lord, this individual who claims to be a Christian who has put their trust in you, there is no way they could be truly uncondemnable before you. I've seen their life. There's no way their faith is deep enough or their repentance is good enough. The law condemns them. But the judge responds again. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Or the law stands up in another form. The form of our conscience. Yes, we have put our trust in God. But our conscience screams out against us at times. I've broken the law of God. How can I stand before this holy judge? What's the response of the judge? Who shall lay anything 
to the charge of God's elect. It is God that justifies. You see, dear church family, we must have this ingrained in our minds. That we cannot be justified through the law. We cannot be declared righteous by other people. We cannot even be declared righteous authoritatively by our consciences. It is God that justifies through faith in Him. It is the voice of God that declares us righteous in the courtroom of heaven. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means, doesn't it, that if we are here this morning and we are seeking to quiet our conscience, we are seeking to quiet our conscience through anything outside of simple faith in Jesus Christ, we will inevitably fail. Our good works, we will sin. Our conscience, it will accuse us. We must, we must have peace with God through God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be declared righteous is by the voice of God through faith in God. And when we do this, it's true, isn't it, that Paul's declaration here in our text can become our declaration. Who shall lay anything to my charge? Who can condemn me? We can ask this question. Not because we are righteous, but because it is God that justifies. But then, even as Paul makes this remarkable declaration, we might say another objection is raised in verse 34. But Paul, but Paul, what about my sin? What about my sin? The law might be removed from the courtroom of heaven. It might be silenced. Maybe others can't condemn me, but what about my sin? I look at my life and I see these sins rising up inside me. Will my sin, sins that drag me down, sins that hurt other people, sins that hurt the name of Christ, will that separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Paul, what about the sins of my past, the sins of my youth? They come up to haunt me sometimes, Paul. Will that separate me from the love of Christ? Paul, sometimes when all is said and done, I fear that my simple trust in Jesus Christ is just not enough. And then, Paul, I also look at my own heart and I see my sin, sins of today. Sins that I feel tempted towards. Sins of the future. And I resist them. But I know that God sees my heart. God sees the sin in my heart. How many times, Paul, have I not grieved the Holy Spirit with my sin in my heart? Paul, will my sin separate me from the love of Jesus Christ? And we could go on and on, couldn't we? But it's almost as if Paul, through the whole book of Romans, has been letting his readers lay every last bitter sin upon the table. Every last horrible temptation out before him. And he waits until they're all done. And then he asks the question, Who is he that condemneth? Who is he that condemneth? You've said an awful lot, sinner. Your sin. But I see no one who condemns. I see no one. And we might say, Well, Paul, what are you talking about? I've just talked about all my sins. I have all sorts of accusers sins of idolatry, sins of rebellion against my parents, sins of bitter anger, sins of severe lust, sins of deceit. Sins of theft, sins of covetousness, sins of materialism, sins of greed. They're there, Paul. Have you not been listening to me? How can you say, who is he that condemneth? 
What's Paul's answer? It is Christ that died. It is Christ that died. You see, friends, this is the root. This is the foundation of the security of our comfort in Jesus Christ. Not ultimately ourselves, but Jesus Christ. The law might condemn us. Our sins might rise up from within us and seek to swallow us up. But our security does not rest in ourselves. Our security rests in the fact that it is Christ who has died. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Do we understand the absoluteness of that word? There is no condemnation. Not even a tiny little bit. It is Christ that has died. And then Paul continues, verse 34. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So not only has Christ died, but also the Father has given his divine stamp of approval, his, his divine vindication of the work of Jesus Christ, that it was good. That there was not one sin that was left unpaid on the cross. When Christ said, it is finished. The resurrection gave the stamp of validation that it was indeed finished. There was not one sin he had not paid for. And there was not one law that Christ had broken while he was here on earth. It was a spotless savior. Paying the perfect price for all our sins. You see, if Christ had... If Christ had committed one sin, even a tiny sin, children, even a tiny white lie, even a tiny bit of sinful anger, even a tiny bit of covetousness, even a tiny bit of rebellion against his father, there would have been no resurrection. There would have been no Easter Sunday. There would have been no wonder-filled Mary running from the tomb. There would have been no dumbfounded disciples as they sat in that room with Christ appearing to them. There would have been no witnesses in Jerusalem spreading the good news. There would have been no reconciliation between Peter and Christ. There would have been no great commission in Matthew 28. There would have been no Pentecost where the Spirit fell on the people of God. There would have been no conversion of Paul. No book of Romans. No Christian church. No baptism. No grace. No Bible. No God of love. No salvation. No comfort in life and in death for anyone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. But, Paul says in our text, It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And then Paul, as if he's just overwhelmed by the glory of this, breaks out into this phrase. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He starts, who shall lay anything to the charge of, charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. And who then shall separate us from the love of Christ. And this dear church family is one of the great, one of, we could call it, one of the majestic doctrines in Scripture. If you think about it in terms of the 
mountain illustration I've been using. It's one of the tallest peaks in the Bible. That despite the accusation of the law, despite all our own sins, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this isn't just a New Testament doctrine, is it? Jeremiah 31, the great new covenant prophecy. Jeremiah says this about God's love for himself and for Israel. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Not just going back into eternity past, but going forward into eternity to come. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. So can I say to you, dear unbelieving friend, why do you not run after this love? Jesus Christ says to you, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Or dear believing friend, why will you not rest? Why will you not rest in the love, the everlasting love of God? Zephaniah, we read this incredible statement concerning us. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. God rests, dear Christian. He rests. He is at ease. It is finished in his love towards you. There is no tumult in the mind of God in regards his love for you. He rests in his love for you. Will you not rest in that love? What a good thing to still our consciences, to rest our hearts in the everlasting and the unbreakable love of Christ. But you know, if you're a Christian, and I know, that even if we rest, even if we rest in this love of Christ, still, storms arise, don't they? They come up in our lives in all sorts of forms. And they begin to shake our secure confidence in God. They shake our resting in the love of Christ. And Paul was no stranger to these storms, was he? In fact, even as he reaches this, this glorious crescendo of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, it's as if he looks back on his life and he thinks about all the troubles that have Attempted to tear him from the love of Christ. And he thinks also about all those dearly loved people in the churches he started. And that he's ministered to. And all the troubles that would shake them from Christ. And he begins to lay out, doesn't he, the, the objections that might come up as to the inseparable love of Christ. Who shall separate us, he says, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Will, separate, will persecution separate me from the love of Christ? And let's make this personal here this morning. We live in a peaceful land in many ways, don't we? That if we have our eyes open, we should be very aware of the fact that our country is drifting very quickly away from God. And if you look through history, the normative pattern when countries drift away from God is to increasingly hate those who belong to God. And so we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised if persecution is on the horizon. Also for us, here today. So we need to ask the question, 
Will persecution? Will the suffering of persecution that Paul is speaking of here separate us from the love of Christ? What about imprisonment? What about death? Will that separate us from the love of Christ? Or what about mild persecution, if I can put it that way? Where the little comforts of life, if we're faithful, the little comforts of life, the luxuries of life, our reputation in the world, maybe our financial well-being, what if those things start to slowly be taken away? Will that separate us from the love of Christ? Well, what's Paul's response? Verse 37. Nay, no. In all these things, in all our sufferings, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Through him that loved us. You see, that's the key phrase here. Through him that loved us. If Christ had not loved us and so endured all these sufferings that Paul is speaking of, To the ultimate degree. If he had not seen the very pit of hell itself. Then we could not read these words with confidence. We would not be anything here today but miserable people. Miserable people who had nothing to look forward to. But eternal death. But it's because. It's because Christ suffered. It's because he took all these things that Paul can say that in all these things, in all our sufferings, we we are not only not failures, but we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. But maybe as this question and this assertion goes out from the mouth of Paul, it seems like another question is raised in this group of Paul's readers in verse 38. But Paul, what about death itself? What about death itself? What about my deathbed, Paul? Will that separate me from the love of Christ? What about the crossing of the Jordan? When my time finally comes for me to meet my maker, will that separate me, Paul, from the love of Christ? What about the days leading up to my death? If I am given days, what about mortal sickness? What about the incessant burning of cancer and its treatments? What about extreme mental fatigue as death approaches towards me? What if I'm afflicted with Alzheimer's and I forget about God? What if the pain of death is so all-encompassing that God is distant and cold to me? What if in the middle of my death I'm in so much pain that I forget to cry out to God? What if I think ungodly sins on my deathbed? Might these things, Paul, might they separate me from the love of Christ? What about that moment when the soul leave, my soul leaves my body? Will that separate me from the love of Christ? Will it all be too much for me? Or what about after my death? When my body is laid in the ground, turns to dust. Will that separate me, Paul? From the love of Christ? No, says Paul. Nay, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of Of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I am persuaded. It's certain. It cannot be broken. It's as if Paul is drawing us in all our uncertainties 
to his certainty, which is really the certainty of the word of God, and saying, leave aside your uncertainties if you are in Christ, and rest in the fact that it is an unbroken fact that you cannot be separated from the love of God when you are once in him. I am persuaded. Rest in that persuasion. Rest in the persuasion of the word of God. It is, after all, God's word and God's salvation that we rest in, not ourselves. If we are gaining our assurance and our confidence from ourselves, we've got it all wrong. We get our assurance from God, from his certain work, from the fullness of his salvation. I am persuaded, says Paul, I am persuaded that neither death nor life here it's almost as if another hand is raised. But Paul, I understand that in that moment of great trial, when death comes to God's people, that Christ will preserve them through it. And what a wonderful truth that is. But Paul, what about life? What about life in general? What about those mundane days and months and years as life just continues to go on and... All the boring days, the normal days, filled with little temptations. And all the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. Enter my soul, Paul. Will that separate me from the love of Christ? Will that separate me, Paul? What I'm really asking Paul is this. What if, what if I begin to grow cold in my love towards Christ? What if as... as all the busyness of life and all the normal comforts of life begin to enter my soul and, and my love for Christ begins to wane. What if I get so busy that my devotional life starts to slip and my family devotional life starts to slip and I stop paying such good attention in church. I stop attending Bible studies. I stop attending prayer meetings. What about then, Paul? What about then? Will that separate me from the love of Christ? No, says Paul. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor life shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Paul asked a few chapters earlier. God forbid. God forbid. May we never grow cold in our love for God. But at the same time, I am persuaded that neither death nor life shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then it's almost as if another hand goes up and says, Paul, I understand this, but what about spiritual powers? What about spiritual powers? I know in my heart, I know from my life experience that what you talk about here is true. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And Paul, I've felt in my heart temptations. I felt temptations to deny Christ. I felt temptations to partake in heinous sins. I've felt temptations to curse God and die. Paul, will those temptations coming from these spiritual wickedness in high places, will that separate me from the love of Christ? Or another hand goes up and, and says to Paul, Paul, I've worked on the mission field. I've seen the forces of spiritual darkness and they are strong. Will they separate me, Paul, from the love of Christ? No, says Paul, not even angels, not even principalities, not even spiritual powers can separate you from the love of Christ. Or another reader says, but what about the present? What about the future? What about, if we can put it this way, the passage of time? Time can ruin nations. Time can destroy economies. Time can turn families upside down. Will Christ forget about me, Paul, over time? 
Will I forget about Christ over time? Time, they say, as a way of separating the best of friends. Paul, will time separate me from the love of Christ? It's almost as if Paul is about to reply, but then another objection. Paul, what about the heights of life? When I get on a high in life, I'm so busy with work and with pleasure and with friends, and I'm enjoying life, and, and, and my spiritual life seems to go to the side a little bit. Paul, will that separate me from the love of Christ? Or, says another voice, Paul, what about the depths of life? What about the, those deep places of life? What about my winter blues, Paul? What about my feelings of despair? What about depression? What about manic depression? What about my wild swings and emotions? Where I go from anger to love and back to anger again. What about my bitterness? What about those black moods that nobody sees except God? Maybe a lone stranger on the street. Paul, what about the depths of my Will that separate me from the love of Christ? No, 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 says Paul. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I am persuaded. I am persuaded. Then neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's as if Paul is putting before us a blank sheet of paper. And he's saying... Write on that sheet of paper anything you want. Any created thing. Is that what that word creature means there in our text? I am persuaded that it cannot separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let sin come forward. Let the law come forward. Let the devil with all his demons come forward. Let justice come forward. I am persuaded that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that our confidence here this morning? Is it? Is that where you rest when the day is done? Is that what helps you through the hard times? And if it's not, what kind of security... What kind of comfort are you resting in that is going to help you on the day of your death? Think through the things that you might be relying on. Will it help you in the day of your death? Matthew Henry, who we all know, told a story once of a minister who was dying and as he was dying he called for a Bible but finding his sight gone he said turn me to the 8th chapter of Romans and set my fingers at these words I am persuaded that neither death nor life now he said is my finger on them and when they told him it was on that text, without speaking any more, he said, Now God be with you, my children. I have breakfasted with you and shall sup with my Lord Jesus Christ this night. Is this your comfort? Is this your security? Is this your salvation? Not that you've accomplished so much in life or that you got everything you were looking for in life. Not that you were good looking or wealthy or had good friends or, or stayed healthy all your life. 
or any other thing you might put in there. But that, when death calls your name one day, you will be able to lay a hold of the Christ who has laid a hold of you and say nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear church family, make this your confidence. Life goes by quickly. Don't wait. Rest in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and he will carry you through thick and thin, whatever you may face. And one day when you do cross the Jordan, all will be well. No, it may not be easy, but all will be well. Because you look forward to that place where Jesus Christ is all and in all. And where you will be in that world full of love. That world full of joy. Where the love of God will be everything to you. And you will rejoice. Don't waste this life. Make things right with God. And then rest in that secure love of God. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Gracious and merciful God and our Father, which art in heaven. O Lord, what a joy it is to know that despite our many sins, our many failings, our many weaknesses, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, if there are any here who do not know this Lord Jesus Christ and his supreme love, draw them, Lord, with cords of love. Teach them that it is nothing but misery to be outside of Christ, but that to know the love of Christ is to have eternal life. And Lord, for those who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, oh Lord, that they might rest in this love, whatever affliction is troubling them, that they might go there, that this, they might know that this life is short and nothing but a continual death, but in Christ we have eternal life. Forgive us, O Lord, of the sins even of this hour. Go with us into the rest of this day. Do bring us once again together this afternoon to worship thy holy name. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing now.